welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Aaron Powell. Well, boil my giblets and call me Chicken Lil because my stars, the sky is falling. But fear not, because we have brought three wise friends to join us here for the end of the world, including research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and co-host of Libertarianism.org's own podcast, Free Thoughts, Trevor Burris. Thanks for having me back. Director of Cato's Project on Emerging Technologies, Matthew Feeney. Happy to be here. And what's this? Deputy Managing Editor at Reason and Traitor to me personally, Natalie Dowzicki. I'm back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me on my first co-hosting gig at Pop and Lock. It's it's a little odd doing it with Natalie on the call, but I will I'll try not to mess it up. She's watching. I'm totally judging your performance. <laughs> it seems like the biggest question people have had about Don't Look Up, the one that sparked the most conversation, and so the one that I will use to spark our episode today is just what is this movie about in the first place? I think at first glance, it's um, a pretty obvious uh, commentary on science and politics, particularly with, you know, a, a, as a sort of lesson about climate change seems to be like the obvious comparison, right? Where there is a, a scientists have identified a obvious catastrophic event in the future. And the only thing that is halting sensible, well-known mitigation efforts uh, is stupid politicians. And, and the movies about that basically. Uh, and in, in this film, the uh, catastrophe is not uh, climate change, it's a comet that uh, scientists played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence have identified. And uh, the, the stupid president played by Meryl Streep is um, unwilling to take it seriously and she's more concerned with her poll numbers and um, events unfold accordingly. As Matthew said, there's two things it's about. One is the kind of like hitting you in the face with a hammer climate change analogy, which is we can get more into whether that works as an analogy for climate change or whether it works as an analogy for COVID. But I think where it does work is a commentary on our current politics. So what it's really about, is, for me, the comparison is Armageddon, which I think is 1998, if I remember correctly, versus Don't Look Up. And like the way that we view our political systems and what we do in Armageddon versus the way we view our political systems and don't look up. Because in Armageddon, it's this massive collaborative, let's go beat the asteroid or comet. And then don't look up. It's this divisive, schismatic, hatred-filled, ignorance-filled parable told by the filmmakers, which of course is self-aggrandizing toward the filmmakers themselves and the people who realize what's happening versus the people who don't realize what's happening. So it's multiple levels of what it works on, but I think mostly it's a commentary on our current political system. And that way it actually kind of works. I also think the response to the movie was on a bunch of different levels. Um, so you could see people taking a very surface level and looking at it as um, kind of like hits you over the head, like Trevor was just saying um, with their message. And I think the response to the movie is probably indicative or not indicative. I would say there was such a large response on both or from a variety of viewpoints because of the cast. Um, Feeney mentioned 
the big cast they were able to get. I'm still I'm still kind of shocked that they were able to get that many big names on a film like this. Um, especially for like I'm thinking especially for like the smaller parts too. Like Timothy Chalamet is like his part is like basically pointless or and very small. Um and it's it's rare that you see big name actors like that in in films that are more niche, I would say, like this. Um, but I, I guess that was kind of, I think that's what the cast is why I think it got such a large response, um, in general, honestly. It does seem that in interviews, a lot of the cast members talked about how, talked about this being a parable for climate change and how important it was to get people to wake up. And so I wonder if that played into, given the politics of Hollywood, its ability to attract these kind of people is like you're going to appear in this movie with big name stars and a big name director talking about this important thing and making fun of the people that you know you want to make fun of. But I wanted to go a bit more into the what is this about and the climate change because I think that's maybe unintentionally one of the most interesting things about the movie from kind of a meta perspective. So not from like the you know what the movie thought it was trying to do or the the discrete political satire, but just from the broader picture of it, because they have said, like, there's the authors of the movie have said it's about climate change. And we can ask ourselves if it, you know, when I was watching it, I thought it was more, it worked better as a COVID parable than a climate change parable. But they have said that. And if that's the case, it, there are things about it that make it not work as a climate change movie. And the biggest one of those, and the one that I think is the most interesting from the politics of climate change, is the six-month ticking clock to absolute destruction of it. Because climate change, even in the most catastrophic versions of it, right, that we hear about, would not be six months and we're all dead. It would be some period of years and then we, you know, things get worse and worse and worse. And and what that ends up doing is to some extent restating the critique of climate alarmism via the movie, which is that we keep getting told, you know, Al Gore back in the 90s doing it, we keep getting told that the world is going to end very soon because of climate change. Our cities are going to be underwater in just a matter of years. We won't be able to feed ourselves in just three years or so on and so forth. And those deadlines keep passing. And that doesn't mean that it's, you know, that climate change isn't happening, that it's not dangerous or whatever, but the rhetoric around it has been precisely the kind of catastrophic talk that this movie is framed with. But the fact that that hasn't happened is I think one of the main reasons that people are as nonchalant about the possibility of climate change as the movie criticizes the public for being in the film. I, I think it's really interesting that you bring up both this in response to sort of the cast and the intent and the death of the author because Adam McKay, the writer and director and producer of this film, actually credits his sort of climate awakening to an inconvenient truth very very much specifically you know, before this he was making anchorman uh talladega nights uh step brothers sort of classic canonical Don't the big short 
Don't forget the big four. But that is what's interesting is that is also after this sort of awakening when he wants to make very politically and sort of culturally conscious films rather than, you know, the other guys or the ballad of Ricky Bobby. All films that I highly enjoy and think are very funny in their own right and are, you know, very special to sort of my comedic incubation. But he he sees this film, An Inconvenient Truth, and it sort of wakes him up and he sees this and thinks like, I want to make movies that are going to actually move people in a certain direction and with a a very specific heavy-handed intent. And I think that's a lot of what of this this sort of critique of the film has has been reduced to uh, in broad strokes is that it's it's heavy-handedness. And to me, it you could paint it that way but i don't think it's 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 attempting to be heavy-handed but in doing so it ends up being kind of middling like there were a lot of people that loved it it is now as of you know today the second most watched netflix film of all time second only to red notice which it seems impossible to me i don't know how that worked i don't know how many people watched that movie that film was not very good I don't get it. Putting it out there. (laughs) Stay tuned for next episode of Pop and Lock on Red Notice. Um, (laughs) But and then there's other ones. You know, critically, it was panned because of this heavy handedness. But it it really just sort of goes down the middle and wants to be about climate change, but ends up being more about broad strokes politics than it is because they've limited themselves with this asteroid metaphor that they've come on, which is. It, it it just like Aaron was saying, the ticking clock does not mirror the same cultural baggage that sort of pins down climate change in the same way, um, because there are a lot of unknowns in, in that issue. But I think specifically Adam McKay had said after he was like writing this movie, you know, Inconvenient Truth woke him up. But he said that his intent was his his <laughs> this is a quote. He says, my sweaty fever dream of a situation would be specifically Joe Manchin sitting down with his family and thinking, let's watch this. It's supposed to be a comedy. My kids like Leonardo DiCaprio, my grandkids like Ariana Grande. And then the ending comes And his dream is that for one second, Joe Manchin feels it in his bones for just one second. So the casting is not only a draw for people, but it is specifically one of the ways that he wanted to draw people in with this film and sort of create this, you know, subtle turn. But it's really not subtle at all, especially when you think about the kind of person that Leonardo DiCaprio is with his sort of environmentalist background and wanting to like save animals and all things like that it the the characters in it are a draw for people that was intentional but and i do want to say i want to push back i think timothy chalamet i think old timmy c is one of the better characters in this his sort of odd confession of faith that he gives to jennifer lawrence and the prayer that he leads uh, to the family is a, a shockingly, you know, earnest and heartwarming moment about living in the moment and appreciating what we have, which is odd considering the like thrust of the movie to me was a very broad strokes like wake up people we need to act on climate change but in a conspicuous conservation kind of way like there wasn't a clear direction of like what we need to do other than 
the people in power, the powers that be are trying to limit you. But then the people who are framed as the like wise people are the ones who just accept their fate and are appreciative in the moment and sit down and have a nice family dinner together. It's not the people who go out and actually do something about this catastrophic event that is apparently coming inevitably. Well, going on to the um the like uh the the point of the cast I think is interesting because I, I didn't watch this movie even knowing much of what it was about. Um, so I was kind of bored and I was watching Netflix and, you know, the cast stands out. You think, okay, so, you know, so DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, and also probably the best living actor, Mark Rylance is in it, uh, Jonah Hill, Kate uh, Blanchett. I mean, you know, so it's a great cast. And while watching it, I just remember thinking, like, something's just not clicking. Like, I just didn't know. I don't recall, like, laughing. Like, and then, like, actually, my sort of awakening was realizing at, after I'd finished the film that it was directed by the guy who really, really thinks Will Ferrell's hilarious. And then it all made sense uh, because I just find, like, the humor there, just, it, it didn't really work as a comedy, which is funny because you do have great examples of comedies about catastrophic, horrible things, like Dr. Strangelove being a great example of um, perhaps this genre. Um, but even in serious, like, fiction, like, something that definitely should be a pop knock episode is the the sci-fi um, trilogy, The Three-Body Problem, which is about this, we know this thing's happening in 400 years and we can't advance our technology, so what do we do? Um, so part of me thought that it, it sort of failed as at least a commentary, uh, as a comedy, and the, the attempted uh, commentary was just too over, um, too overdone to to be taken seriously. Um, but maybe there's just a, a Will Ferrell shaped hole in my head that needs filling. I just don't really, really get it. Oh, it doesn't work as a comedy, I think, at all. There's a few. Some of the satire points are quite, I think, interesting, especially the way it incorporates uh, the way our conversations are run by social media is done fairly interestingly. But to to Aaron's question and to his point about the climate change analogy, it is exactly what is sort of intolerable about this movie. I mean, I didn't hate it, but but I spent a lot of time grimacing in different ways. And it's when you take the cast, you take like Leonardo DiCaprio, and as Landry said, we know where he sits on these things. And uh, I assume Jennifer Lawrence too. Aaron and I have talked about this for 20 years. Like one of the biggest problems that people have in the political sphere, personal problems, is that other people don't care about their values, that they value something like the environment um, or guns or something like this, and other people don't value it in the same way. And so you have to try and figure out how to get someone else to value your values. And there's a ver there's various ways you can do this. You could say, you know, I really think that all th think about <clears throat> ar architectural preservation, like historical preservation. I have a very high premium myself on preserving historical monuments, pre pre preserving historical sites, and other people don't have the same level of that premium. So I have to try and convince them, hey, we should preserve, you know, the Gettysburg battlefield or something like this. Um, but if you come to something like environmentalism where you just really love nature or you love animals and some people don't love them as much, so you have to figure out how to get them to love them as much. And one way people do this is they postulate the existence of a catastrophe. <clears throat> they say, if you don't love this, if people if people didn't love this as much as I do, there will be something that is horrible that happens. 
And so if you don't like the environment as much as me, uh, we will have an apocalypse, an, an environmental apocalypse. And so you should love, you should have the same values as me uh, because of this catastrophe. And this is something that it comes up a lot, but it's the biggest one is environmentalism because for people who are very, very into the environment, other people aren't into the environment enough for them. So if you postulate an end time scenario, uh, you can try to move that sort of goal. Like you can move people toward sharing your values. And I think that's what mostly this movie is about is the director, Leonardo DiCaprio, everyone involved with it, trying to get people to care as much about something as they do when actually there's just a bunch of different trade-offs involved in what we do with the environment. But this pretends that there are no trade-offs, right? A catastrophe says no trade-offs. That's what a catastrophe like kind of comes in. It says there's either the end times, so Christians will do this too, Either everyone becomes Christian and we all die in like God's judgment, um, or uh, there's no no trade-offs. That's it. You, that's those are the two choices. And and in this movie, it's that it's that sort of simplicity of that worldview that really kind of you know, as I said before, hits you over the head, makes you should make you roll your eyes a bit um, and see the point of this movie. I, mean, I did not know that, as Landry said, that in, inconvenient truth kind of was his awakening. But it makes sense because that's where revelation comes from. You say, okay, the end times are coming. We have to do something and everyone has to be on the same page. And that's what this movie is fundamentally trying to do. What happens then if we effectively decontextualize it from that that background, that part of the conversation? Because that's what I found myself doing when I was watching it. Like I didn't go into it knowing that it was explicitly being made about climate change. I suspected that that was a big part of it, but the COVID parable also seemed to work in a lot of ways. But what I found myself doing while watching it was instead thinking if we effectively like death of the author this, take out the intent of the people behind it, the people making it and so on, and look at it less as what is the particular catastrophic thing that they are trying to beat us over the head with their political message about and instead see it as a satire or an examination of how politicians, industry, and the general public might respond to the news that unless we do something, the world's going to end in six months and the struggles of actually trying to do something. There, I thought it was a much more effective movie and and was not – I mean it was satire, but it didn't feel in that regard preachy or heavy-handed and in fact, had a lot of, I think, libertarian themes. As, as our friend Christopher Hudson on Twitter pointed out, all of the bad guys in the movie are either the politicians, the government employees, the like dumb political media, or politically connected businessmen, right? Like it's all it's all that nexus of like politics is everything was the cause of the ultimate demise of the world, which is quite a libertarian message. And two, I thought that it had a an interesting perspective on the way the general public responded because the movie wants you to be mad at all of the ordinary people who either kind of went on with their lives in, you know, in all their like normalness or silly contours or whatever um and either didn't get worked up about it or were kind of like didn't say like, well, I need to change everything that I'm doing right now 
about this, that there was more of just either the fact that the world's going to end in six months doesn't fit into my broader narrative of how things are, and so I'm just not going to process it, and I'm just going to continue on, um, or I'm just going to keep living the way I'm living because there's not anything I can actually do about this in the moment, like as me, as you know, a random person. Um, and so there was kind of an acceptance and a not, we're not going to run around screaming, which I think is also, that's probably how a lot of people would respond to something like this. And I don't know that it is necessarily the wrong response versus I don't know there would be a better response if everyone was just spent six months rending their garments and being depressed and, you know, like totally not enjoying the little bit of time that they had left. And I, I think that's why I didn't, like we were saying earlier, the like allegory for the long-term threat of climate change just doesn't work. Like, because it doesn't have, like, I don't know if they're trying to inspire change and like, yeah, if you're going to know the, if you know the world is ending in six months because of some comet, are you going to like, okay, yes, now I'm going to participate in meatless Mondays because we like, that's not going to, it's not going to do anything. Um, and so I guess while I was watching, which no one else has brought up yet, I was thinking of like other movies that I knew that I know of that are like about the end of the world. Um, so like I was thinking of, uh, you know, 2012 when everyone had that panic and then there was like that movie had like the large flood and everything gets frozen. Um, War of the Worlds, obviously that's aliens, a little different. Um, I Am Legend, that one's more like closer to like disease pandemic type thing with weird creatures that are bringing them. Um, but I thought in in like that category, Don't Look Up kind of was a is a better movie compared for if it's an end of the world movie, not like Aaron was saying, not contextualized within like the large larger climate change narrative. Um, because I think it was probably the most realistic as to how how people would react. Um, because like in the in the, in the other movies like 20, uh, 2012, War of the Worlds, I Am Legend, there's like large like unrest, uh, especially like in War of the Worlds. Um, obviously with aliens, different, but like people start like migrating far away to see if they can get get away from the um, the aliens. I just don't think. In this context, for an end-of-the-world movie, it makes more sense than for a larger allegory about climate change. Um, and now for a pandemic movie, which they they filmed this prior to COVID-19, um, I think it actually works kind of well. Um, but I think they probably just got lucky with that. Honestly, McKay could have easily changed his messaging, being like, oh, yeah, this is about pandemic. Um, and I prob- I wouldn't have questioned it. I would have thought it was totally, totally on point. Well, aside from the scientific certainty, Aaron's question made me think about this. There's something about asteroids, comets, that is scientifically certain. Like we can do the orbital calculations and say, we do that all the time when we send a spacecraft to Uranus or something, right? At 2 p.m. on August 14th, it will arrive there. But aside from that scenario, what would be the kind of situation where we there would be someone talking about a possible apocalypse and trying to convince people of this. And Natalie's point, the, the pandemic is a good example. I know that you know people have been talking about the possibility of a pandemic for a while. There was that story that came out about George Bush, who was who read some book, I think maybe 
John Barry's great influenza book and was became very scared of the fact that a pandemic will happen and we're not preparing for it. Um, and so how people respond to that. One that strikes me would, would be, since I'm here in Colorado right now, the Yellowstone caldera volcano, uh, which you know could blow at any time. So if you imagine some scientist who figures out with 75% accuracy that this will blow sometime in the next six months and then tries to convince everyone about it. Uh, so if we take some scenario where someone is trying to say, to ring the bell and say, this is very likely we should be preparing more than we are, um, is that asteroid is not that way. That's why it works so sort of simplistically in this narrative. Well, also a crucial difference between an asteroid and COVID is, or, or any pandemic is that Overcoming the pandemic is in large part going to be a result of billions of ordinary people taking vaccines, not being stupid, and you know, uh, adhering to common sense uh, regulations. Whereas if there's an asteroid coming to Earth, it doesn't matter if 5 billion people don't even believe it exists, as long as a few thousand people who have the resources and knowledge are smart about it, they could solve it. Abs- you know, you might wonder is a is a you know <laughs> is a is a planet of five billion people stupid enough not to see the comet coming <laughs> worth saving? But you know that's the the whole point. There is that as long as the educated elites know what they're doing, you could actually stave off an asteroid or a comet hitting without any input or any any ordinary person on the ground having to do anything. Um, and it's similar with climate change, actually. Like, it's closer to an asteroid than the pandemic, which is, you know, a, a lot of people politically, their dream is that elite, just, like, seizing control and just telling everyone, this is what we're doing now, okay? Like, you're not going to eat as much meat, and you're not going to drive those cars, and you're not going to fly. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. Um, but that that was a difference that... Um, that that struck me uh, because, like Aaron, while watching the movie, I was trying to disentangle it from my my policy brain. I was like, okay, I should just try and enjoy this as a sort of disaster film. And um, but then it got into a whole thing of like mining asteroids, which made the movie even worse. And anyway, that's a whole different conversation. But um, but yeah. One thing that struck me watching this movie was how U.S. centric it was. It was, I mean, it was like, you know, giant monster movies or a lot of disaster movies where this this thing that's like a threat to everybody is basically only seems to be happening in one country and it's up to that one country's government to to fix it. And outside of the the scene towards the end, the relatively minor scene of, oh, the Russians and some other companies tried this and it messed up, um, we get basically no other country seems involved in this movie. Um, there's talk of like buying mineral rights and things, but no other country seems involved. It seems to be entirely the U.S. The U.S.'s plan initially, the one that we're led to believe would have worked, is not incredibly complicated. Other countries have rockets and nukes and whatever. Um, and so looking at this as like what would actually happen, it I would be very surprised if things actually played out that way, where everyone's like, yeah, there's this idiot president in America and they're messing up or they might not do anything, but like, it's not like we can do anything. Um, and so it was just that, that like hyper US focused was an interesting read through it. But I think it also plays into part of the climate change debate because one of the points, like there's always this, the Western countries need to radically reduce their their CO2 output to save this. But the counterpoint to that is that, you know, this is not, 
you can't solve climate change by the U.S. cutting its emissions because it's a global issue and lots of countries and a lot of the emissions are coming from other countries and so on. And so it has to be a global thing. But this seemed to play into that narrative of like, this is up to us rich, rich Westerners to save the world. Well, I, I, I think it's an artifact mostly of film making industry. All I would say to that is Godzilla always attacks Tokyo and no one else in the world ever seems to care, but where do they make those movies? Yeah. Um, you, you do think that the, the nuclear powers would, would engage in some degree of cooperation if uh, this was a real, a real issue. Um, but then of course you have uh, this multi-billionaire played by Mark Rylance, who's, you know, an eccentric guy who um, comes up with the idea of let's not, you know, blow the, the comet up. We can mine it. Uh, we sort of added in another bit of like political commentary that, it, you know, greed is what's really going to kill us. Right. It's not just like political incompetence from politicians. It's greed from the private sector. And, you know, that, that's just another added layer. Uh, but I, I have my own, um, you know, policy reasons why I think that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, you know, happy to get into that, but uh, it's, it's true that, Asteroids uh, have a lot of really valuable minerals in them, and there's trillions and trillions of dollars worth of minerals flying around in the solar system. Uh, whether it passed the cost-benefit analysis to actually fly up, set up mining, and do it, and then to bring stuff back to Earth is a, a very different question. I don't think it comes close to passing the cost-benefit analysis there. Uh, for future solar system like exploration, you can argue that it's good to have I don't know, little bases on select asteroids where people can, um, I don't know, 3D print new tools and things, and you can build um, missions along the way. Uh, but as far as like mining stuff in space and bringing it back to Earth, that's just, yeah, a little silly. But that wasn't, if I remember correctly, their plan wasn't to mine stuff in space, right? It was to blow it up into pieces that when they fell, wouldn't do much damage and then gather them up on the Earth and mine them there. That was, that's definitely true. Um, the, the, I worry how many people afterwards are Googling mining asteroids and uh, getting into, because this has been a big, um, uh, yeah, again, it's uh, my, my bias sitting from what I read and see every day, but this is something that comes up every few months that, uh, you know, maybe we should be mining asteroids. But I do want to, I do want to pick up on that, that business angle of it, because it does play this really important role and the, the idea and the, this is the, I said it wasn't a comedy. Like one line where I did laugh out loud is when she tries to go back to her, when Jennifer Lawrence character tries to go back to her parents' house and they have locked the door and they say, her mom says, your dad and I are for the jobs the comet will provide. Did you laugh or cringe? Because um, I cringed heavily at that. I laughed. I thought it was a funny line. A little of uh, both. <laughs> but that idea that it's not it's not clear whether the movie accepts this or if just the the businessman and then kind of the politicians are in his pocket accept it, but that- that if we got trillions of dollars of let's bracket the conversation of whether this plan would work but like if if we suddenly had trillions of dollars of rare earth minerals and other things that go into our electronics um that would potentially decrease the cost of our electronics because more minerals it would be they'd be cheaper it would bring down the cost because we'd have a like overabundance of these minerals that doesn't mean that it would be worth trillions of dollars because the reason these minerals are worth so much is the scarcity of them. And this would be, they weren't talking about creating artificial scarcity in this the way that say like De Beers does with diamonds. Uh, but 
but when they're selling it to the people, it is like, and the the businessman, the Marco Islands character talks about it this way, that like this, this will be, bring so much wealth that it will end world hunger. It'll end basically all poverty. And I think this is, this is kind of a common idea that the reason people are poor is lack of raw materials, that the reason poverty exists in the world is because we don't have enough stuff we can pull out of the ground. Um, and if we just had more resources, we would be richer. And that connection is not really the case, that that's not the reason that people are poor. It's usually misallocation of resources or limits on people putting resources to better use, um, whether that's infrastructure or government preventing it or so on. But it seemed to get the notion of like poverty and how to fix it wrong. And it seemed odd that like a businessman, I mean, businessmen, there are lots of businessmen with lots of crazy ideas who don't understand how economics works or other things, but that it seemed unlikely that someone who knew that much about it would think this would be the thing that would solve world hunger. I think I kind of took that mostly as intentional or at least not a uh, an oversight on the filmmaker's part. Uh, to me, it reads very much like a sort of not intentional, but a common critique that we see of neoliberalism in general and big business and you know government being in bed together in a uh, sort of uh, antagonistic or maniacal way. Um, and and that's even reflected in Jennifer Lawrence's character. Um, they're mostly talking about the politicians, but at this point, the sort of business bash, I think is what the company is called. Mark Rylance's character uh, has found it and heads it. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence says to these kids as they're sort of partying in the, you know, around a trash fire that the truth is way more depressing than the sort of conspiracy theories that they're spilling, you know, spinning up about trying to bring Chileans across the border. Um, it, the truth is that they're not even smart enough to be as evil as you're giving them credit for, which struck me as odd because, sure, we see some of them being dumb and we see the Meryl Streep character and she and Jonah Hill and they're obviously sort of lampooning specifically the Trump administration and and things like that it's it's pretty blatant but then they show her you know with Bill Clinton to sort of throw a bone to people and say we're not acknowledging which party they're going to be um even though we all kind of know what they're trying to represent there um but the way that they function and sort of pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes because we don't we don't see that much of the public of normal people it's a lot of you know closed door meetings we'll see media uh you know you see the people in the bar you see the family uh, on occasion but we're not getting like you know really accurate depictions of what the public is thinking we're seeing stock footage um and so i think that the antagonists the politicians and the business people come across as much more slick than they might be intending because you can tell the movie and especially in like marketing and stuff i think it wanted to be more like an ianucci film it wanted to be a little more veep like a little more in the thick of it it's and they talk about how a lot of these scenes the dialogue was heavily improvised jonah hill who actually does i think a very very good job in this movie he's very funny um he, you know they're making stuff up but the editing in particular really 
tightens things up and polishes them and sort of takes the the rough edges off of the improvised feel of it and makes everyone come across as as much more sort of conniving and successful even if they're dumb so th- they might be they might be sm- not as smart as those people are giving them credit for but they are smart enough to pull the wool over people's eyes and get the power that they want which sort of i think does mirror the critique of neoliberalism that we see um pretty commonly these days there's something Landry and I was talking about in terms of like characterization before this, that um, the depiction of some of the characters just seems like off. Um, so like the business leader, um, I'm blanking on what his character name is, but the the owner of Bash, um, his characterization are in like the way he like talked and the way he like walked around the room and like even like just certain mannerisms just really bothered me. Um, like, and I don't know if it was like, they're just trying to exaggerate that or if that was like the intent, um, because I, I'm sure he's trying, he's like this supposed to be this like Zen, you know, billionaire character, but like, honestly, his, the, um, depiction is just like bothersome to watch. Um, like the way he was talking was really annoying, like just annoying. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily the intent of that I don't know if anyone else noticed that. And then the other the other character that I think they like was just kind of odd was the the whole thing with the general and like buying snacks. Um, I like I was laughing just because it was like, oh, it's like because I was thinking about like, oh, there's no free lunch, right? Like th- that whole that whole bit. But at the same time, I was like, what is this adding to the movie? And then like Jennifer Lawrence brings it back up. Like, why would she why would he do that? Um, it was just like another thing. It was like, this just seems like odd placement or maybe there was more there before and it got cut out um but i don't know how it would get cut out this movie was already almost three hours long (laughs) i think that that's a big part of this with that he's obviously on the spectrum and it's very ham-fisted the peter isherwell i think is the name of the character it's extremely ham-fisted how much he's like portrayed to be on the spectrum and i think that's a big part it's fine it's satire a little bit simple i did not realize that i didn't think about it either but it makes sense when you say it i sort of imagined him as sort of almost like maybe he was an older like the portrayal was like he was an older ceo that perhaps was like in the early stages of dementia oh no no he's just a silicon valley dude who's who's on the spectrum like and that's why they make him so weird the reason it fails i think is is it's not rylance's fault it's just bad writing and direction is that the character yeah, seems to be like the, the character seems to be let's get like mark zuckerberg elon musk and peter Thiel together and see if we can make a character that represents everything that adam mckay hates about silicon valley and it just doesn't really work because those three people you might not like them but they are separate and they have separate um personalities and flaws and um and ideas uh and it, it did um it, it look it's okay for a character to be unbelievable in a comedy right but they have to make sense within the universe they're in <laughs> and that that was i think a character where there was just failure there well the um, analogy would I be mean, the main the uh character in silicon valley the the character who does the who's the angel investor so he, that's a much better portrayal of someone who is more sort of realistic in that silicon valley startup sphere than the writing of mark rylance's character yeah because there's that whole um 
there's that stereotype of Silicon Valley people being, you know, very socially awkward. Um, they, you know, they like kind of um, have a, have a creepy obsession with people's lives and, you know, surveillance capitalism. Um, and they, they get high up just because they have weird outlandish ideas that will never work. You know, that it's all sort of, it makes sense within um, the context of the movie, I suppose, but it didn't quite, quite work. I, I will say, cause I know I've been very critical, but I, I, I thought, DiCaprio did a good job of being a kind of bemused um, academic who's suddenly thrown into an environment where he's, yeah, famous, but no one's listening to him, which is, uh, you know, probably not a great place to be. Uh, but uh, it, it, I, I think part of the, the the failure of the film is that the, the characters that are, you're supposed to really not like, like the, the president, like the Rylance character, just aren't particularly believable, even within the comedic universe that McKay built. I also wanted to mention, too, that I guess when they were making this film, no billionaires had been to space yet. So I think the ending um, is a little bit funny that that it was like, OK, the billionaires are going to send like they're going to save like their friends and take them to space. And like um, so I thought thought that was kind of cute. And I also I read more about the ending. Apparently there was like five or six different ways McKay wanted to end the film. Um, and one of them didn't involve, Mer- spoiler alert, didn't involve Meryl Streep dying. Um, but apparently Meryl Streep was insistent on, she wanted to know how she died, whether it was shown in the film or not, because it was going to help her like portray her character. Um, but that was one of, one of my favorite parts at the end was, was how she got eaten by that. Um, I forget what they're called in the, the movie. The Brontorock. Yeah, because <laughs> it was just like, I was like, okay, like, if you're gonna have to end this movie, that's, you know, again, two hour, two and a half hours too long. <laughs> I thought that was like an appropriate ending. There's a part of me that didn't want to see it, though. Maybe if it was like off screen, I would have been more okay with it. But Mark Rylance's character, he he wasn't, he didn't have a lot of laugh lines. He wasn't like the pure comedic character for most of the film. But when he drops the line, when they are asking about how they dies, and they say, you get eaten by a Brontorock. We don't even know what that means. I That was one of the big laugh lines for me in the entire movie. And I would have loved if they would have never acknowledged it ever again. And then when they get to the other planet and it's sort of this like Jurassic World type of thing, I knew exactly what was coming. And so I can see what people would appreciate that. But for me, it kind of ruined the like random, purely distilled uh, sort of absurdity of Rylance's line earlier in the film, which I don't know. That's just me, though. I see why people liked it. Jonah Hill's ending when he when he says like and subscribe and he's the last oh person gosh. on Earth. Okay, that, that that's was good. good. That was that's good. good. <laughs> and was improvised. Yeah. So, good on Jonah Hill. I want to talk about him and his character and I think what he represents in terms of satirizing the American political landscape, because I think one thing that this movie picked up on and did a good job of portraying and it's one of the things that has conf- has confounded me the most about well maybe not the most but it is one of the things that has confounded me a lot about the the modern Trump movement is how much he to a great extent his mother you get some of it but he's he's the vessel for it how much absolute disdain there is by that family for the people who like make up their base that they have no they don't they don't think highly of these people they're simply using them for either a grift 
or for attention. I mean, that was Trump's thing is all that really motivates Trump is getting attention and praise. And his base was a source of that, which is why he likes the rallies. And they had a rally in this movie. Um, and it's always it's always confused me how both obvious that is and how much the base doesn't seem to recognize that. Um, and and I thought that's where that that line about like the three kinds of people and like the cool rich, which also I think had a lot of truth to it in how the the Trumpist base thinks about the the fact that it's a it's a populist movement of the working class against the elites with you know headed up by a family that lives in like a gold plated penthouse. Well, there's disdain across the board in the political sphere, though. I mean, like <clears throat> you're right about Trump, but I think a lot of people who get into politics have some sort of belief in themselves that a people don't understand what's important. B, I understand what's important, and C, I can do this, and the and then D, the way I do this is by convincing people who are not as good as me uh, that I am the thing that can help them. I think there's just a ton of disdain that just comes with being a politician. It's like one of the reasons why, you know, if I were going to have a constitutional amendment, it would be uh, you can't be president if you want to be president because that there's just something really, really bad about people who want to be president and what that says about how they think of themselves. And that's true, obviously, of Trump, but I think it's just as true of Hillary Clinton. Well, and that's interesting because there was no portrayal of any opposition in the movie as well. Like, we know now that there is a, a sort of constant election cycle, that there is no time when someone is not campaigning. Uh, we see this, you know, in the rallies that they portray, but just as well, there are going to be other people who are going to be talking to the media and making speeches. And there's, you know, legislature that is going on where people are going to be standing up and trying to sort of put on a face and get media attention. And we get None of that. We get the populist movement of the people, you know, the 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 just look uppers versus the don't look uppers. But you know, we don't get anyone other than like academics and uh, you know appointed government people, experts in their field. So it is kind of one sided in the portrayal of political elites and the way that they are sort of manipulating people. Because that does exist on both sides as much as, you know, we want to, you know, I mean, certainly I have my own beliefs about which one does it more than the other. But I I think it would be a, a large misrepresentation to say that that doesn't happen no matter the party that you're supporting. I have a question. I, I know we're running out of time, but it may be a good way of in the context of COVID and everything, how do we feel about capital T, capital S, the science and what this movie says about the science? I think that gets back to the the point that I made about the catastrophe and being told that the world ends and the particular nature of the asteroid. Because what we get at the beginning, that that opening scene where he's doing the orbital dynamics calculations on the board, and then they get a bunch of people confirming it. The thing about an asteroid coming at the Earth is more so than you know the other disasters we're told about in our our daily lives. That is one where like the science is almost entirely just math. 
And it's like, here is the thing. We know it's there. We know the direction and speed. So we can know with as close to absolute certainty as you can reasonably get that it will hit us. And we can know that it hitting us will be bad. Like it's a, it is a thing where there's compared to climate change or a pandemic or whatever else, there is as little ambiguity as you could possibly get. And so, and so within the context of the disaster of the movie saying we should believe the science and we get the scenes where there are like early on we've checked it with all of these other scientists and there is like you know absolute consensus and they've double checked and all of that where that is a situation where trusting the science is the perfectly rational thing to do and it would be and you absolutely should do it you know because there's no wiggle room uh, but but the issue is that if the movie is a parable about other things, I think the movie is representative of a view that in areas, whether it's climate science or epidemiology or whatever, the science looks the same as it did there, when in fact it very much does not. And there's also a delineation between who is doing the science that is very, very clearly what they're trying to imply. There's, you know, we have these scholars who are have you know a, a giant telescope they're in contact with nasa they obviously are you know reputable he's a tenured professor at michigan state i don't know if michigan state actually has a really really great uh, astronomy department no knock on michigan state there was a lot um, of crapping on they, michigan they could. state in the movie though <laughs> uh, right but and that's what's interesting is because they they're like oh michigan state la 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 but then they're like but we got our people from yale princeton harvard have you heard of it like suddenly it becomes legitimized when that is checked and then it becomes even more celebrated but with uh like a antagonistic veil and like coding when it's run by bash so you have you know, and you can raise, you know, certainly valid questions about the nature of peer review that they bring up, like people need to be evaluating this from multiple sides, but it also is coded very much like privately funded research, bad. And even so, like research that has been checked only by, you know, Ivy Leagues, like really elite institutions is, you know, valid but still kind of you know sneeringly so but michigan state you know publicly funded universities their research is good and unbiased and completely trustworthy when in reality all of those organizations are working amongst each other all the time like google and facebook and at&t are not just doing research totally in-house themselves or with ivy leagues they are funding public universities to do this research all the time across the country. So, you know, creating like good and bad, it's easy for a storytelling device, but it's not accurate. And it's kind of frustrating because you could have a really nuanced discussion about the science, but it doesn't fit well into this movie. Honestly, what was more interesting to me is how they portrayed how we like consume the science. <laughs> um, so like the really interesting part to me was the little bit with it's it's Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett. They're like hosting a um like a, a daily uh, what I suspect is a daily news show. And um first the first guest on is Ariana Grande and she's you know <laughs> going through this breakup and like with Kid Cuddy. That's with Kid, Kid Cuddy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like clearly the more important 
part of the show or like the show the the part of the show that's going to get them the most clicks or whatever to the uh to the newscasters and then they bring on Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and they it's it's more like just like a blip in their show it's like oh yeah we discovered this like cool new thing and like back to Ariana Grande um and I thought that was like oddly kind of on point um just like from the way like our media works today it's like kind of getting you that they're feeding you a lot of the stuff that's like the most uh grabby or attention seeking and whether that's with kim k or that's with ariana grande like doesn't really necessarily matter to me um and then they'll have like an actually like important bit of news and they just kind of gloss over it um so i thought that also was interesting that it that depiction came from hollywood so it was like almost them admitting that like the media like doesn't give you what it should um which i thought was pretty interesting trevor's question reminds me of um something that 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 we all deal with you know in the sort of um policy think tank world which is the the scientists raising something like a uh is ought problem for policy where you know even if you accept right and and i think we have very good reasons to believe um, science on climate change and and everything else is uh, you you can't get to and therefore X from a climate change fact. And then you're getting into the policy questions of trade-offs. Now with a a civil with a species ending comet, you can argue like, okay, well, um, the trade-off is the end of the species, which we can rank as pretty bad. But g- climate change and COVID, I think, are slightly different because even even people who accept all of the science can still dramatically disagree about what trade-offs are worth it. Uh, because you can believe that COVID is a highly contagious disease that um, kills that kills people, but you might say, but I think spending a million dollars per safe life isn't worth it. Or you could, you know, in climate change, you could say, well, the ideal number of polluted rivers in the world is not zero. You know, it's all going to be um, a matter of trade-offs. And I, I think part of the appeal of uh, it being a comet or an asteroid is is you do get to a, no, let's just assume the end of the species completely very, very soon, uh, because the film doesn't allow for these rather nuanced and more difficult policy questions of what the, what trade-offs are acceptable. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of Libertarianism.org. It's produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by myself and our director and editor, Aaron Ross Powell. To learn more, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org.